Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do, how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. My guest today is Hank Bergson. Hank and my father are close friends, and I grew up spending a lot of time with Hank and his family. Hank served in Vietnam uh, from Valentine's Day 1969 to Valentine's Day 1970, and today we're going to talk about that experience uh, and the many years that have come after. Thank you, Hank, for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome, Charlie. I'm looking forward to it. Just a note to listeners, Hank calls me Charlie. Yes. The rest of the world calls me Harry. We can, we can explain that if, uh, if we feel like it's necessary for the, for the listeners. Um, Hank, can you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what, you, what you do now? Obviously, you spent time in Vietnam a long time ago, but... That's not what you do now. Well, now, actually, uh, being semi-retired, uh, I do some consulting in the uh, electrical wholesale industry relative to the use of independent manufacturers' reps. Uh, but for 20-plus years, twenty almost 25 years, I ran the uh, National Electrical Manufacturers' Representatives Association, which is a trade group in the electrical industry. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I have a number of photographs here that I'm going to end up making reference to that we'll post on the Heritage Radio Network uh, blog. When you were in Vietnam, you took about 300-some photos? Uh, around there. And um, can you uh, talk a little bit about what, what led you to be in Vietnam? Obviously, you were in the military, but you were in the military previous to that. And something that I wanted to ask about is that uh, you went to Vietnam in 1969 when you were in your late 20s. Um, but I have to imagine, you know, we, we see in a lot of popular culture and in movies and things, people going to Vietnam right out of high school in their very, in their early 20s. And so were you older than a lot of the people who you served with? Uh, yes, yes, I was. And, and I'll try and make it a short story because I know you have a lot of questions. But uh, I graduated uh, with a uh, Army commission in, from ROTC from the University of New Hampshire. Uh, I kind of took the scenic route through college. Maybe some of your uh, listeners can... Uh, uh, identify with that. I, I can also identify with that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the net result was that uh, I was offered a regular army commission. Uh, the quick story is uh, the colonel said it's the only difference is it's three years instead of two years. And what you do is you uh, uh, select a combat arm and an overseas assignment. And I said, gee, that sounds like you're setting yourself up for Vietnam. He said, no. He said, be a, a tank uh, armor officer, and uh, they're desperate for armor officers in Germany because they've drawn down, and the government will send your wife, they'll send your car, they'll do all of those things. You'll have at least two years in Germany, and by that, the Vietnam thing will be over. So uh, he was almost right. Uh, we did go to Germany for two years. Uh, I did serve in an armor unit, was a company commander and a supply officer there. 
Uh, Two years in, right when I was getting promoted to captain, uh, I got a note from uh, Uncle Sam that said, uh, uh, please uh, go directly to South Vietnam, drop your wife off at home, and by the way, we're not using many tanks in Vietnam, so would you stop by Fort Benning uh, and take an infantry refresher course? Uh-huh. So that's the story. All right. So so you left Germany, uh, where I imagine you didn't see a lot of combat. Uh, <laughs> None. Yeah. Um, and then, so you came back to the U.S., uh, dropped your wife Jackie back in, in back New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Um, and then, how? What was the what was the travel actually to Vietnam? How did you get there from? Uh, actually, uh, the uh, uh, I flew out commercial uh, at government expense to uh, uh, San Francisco, and then out of Oakland Air Base uh, on a chartered uh, TWA flight full of people going to Vietnam with stops in uh, Hawaii, uh, Wake Island, and Cardina in the Philippines. And I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was that flight, but in also in Japan, and eventually to, uh, to Vietnam. And uh, when, when you arrived, obviously you arrived at some sort of base. How long were you there before you actually went out into the field? Well, that, uh, I was there for... A very short period of time. Uh, basically, you wanted to get acclimated. Uh, they had to work out an assignment uh, because I think some people know people went to Vietnam as individuals. They came back as individuals. It wasn't a unit uh, that did that. You had a one-year tour. So right. I, I find people, that interesting. We, we were discussing that before yeah. the show, the idea that um, people were coming in and out of the unit all the time and so you didn't arrive with this group that you had gone through training with the way that I think it happens now exactly so the so the issue was what do I do with this uh, uh, recently promoted uh, armor officer captain that we now have uh, I was assigned to the 25th uh, infantry division so probably within two or three days uh, we moved up to I moved up to Coochie where the uh, division headquarters was located uh, Got there just in time uh, for Tet of 1969. Uh, and so my first experience was when the North Vietnamese came through the wire for the first time at the Kuchi base. Uh, that was exciting uh, very quickly. So. Uh, and then moved from there, uh, was assigned to the 3rd Brigade of the 25th, moved up to uh, Dao Tiang, which is at that time as the Michelin Rubber Plantation, uh, just in time to arrive uh, the next day, which was the 22nd of February, uh, for the ground attack on the Vietnam, or for the, on the Dao Tiang base. So uh, that kind of popped my bubble, if you will. Sure. Uh, I had a number of different assignments uh, while I was in the 3rd Brigade, and in July... Uh, there was a a very unfortunate friendly fire incident uh, that took place in B Company, uh, first of the 27th Infantry, uh, a unit in uh, of the 25th. Uh, nine soldiers were lost. Uh, it was an issue that related to the company commander. Uh, he was relieved, uh, which means fired in right. army parlance. Uh, the colonel... Uh, was desperate to find an experienced CO, so uh, I got picked. So in July of 1969, although I'd been in uh, in units and, and done liaison work before, uh, I began a six-month tour 
uh, as the company commander of a uh, straight leg, you know, walk uh, uh, infantry company. So you were promoted <clears throat> while you were there. Well, I was, I was promoted when I came in company, in country. So I was still a captain. Got it. Um, and and so the you know a lot of the a lot of the photographs obviously are you guys walking, um, and and would you be dropped off somewhere and told to patrol an area, or did you start out from the base and just sort of like leave leave the base and start walking in a direction? Actually, all of the above. I mean, in, in some instances we left the base and walked in a direction. In other instances, we helped establish a fire support base out in the field. Uh, in other instances, as you know, the helicopter was uh, uh, a pretty. Uh, uh, ubiquitous uh, transportation mode. So, uh, you know, my particular unit, I think during the time I was CO, uh, we did something over uh, 75 combat assaults by helicopters into uh, hostile territory. Uh, we worked with the Navy up and down the uh, Vamco Dong River doing sampan interdiction from units coming from an area called the Parrot's Beak in Vietnam across the river and bringing uh, weapons and, and personnel at the end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail down into the Saigon area. So pretty series of diversified experiences. Sure. I mean, I'd love to ask a couple questions about the photographs um, that, you've, that you've so graciously provided. Um, there's a, a series of photographs in rice fields, which obviously, you know, were ubiquitous in the area. I mean, that whole... You know, Southeast Asia is well known for rice being the being the major grain, and I noticed that some of the photographs um, you're standing in water, and obviously rice needs to be flooded in order to grow, and then some of them are more at harvest time. Right. Um, obviously, those aren't necessarily at the same time uh, that those photographs were taken. But can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be sort of out there um, walking through what is a crop? Um, you know, and then you're seeing people who are farming it. Did you have any interaction with those people? Some, some interaction. Uh, and you certainly tried to be, to some degree, sensitive to, uh, you know, not tearing up people's fields. But for the most part, uh, areas that we were in were right on the edge of uh, areas that were very extensively booby-trapped by the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. So uh, the safest place to be was in the water in the rice paddy rather than walking on the berm. Oh, interesting. Where you were more likely to have an unexpected explosion and a, a nasty incident. Sure, because they couldn't easily they weren't they couldn't easily booby trap the water. Right, right. That's that's very interesting. And and did you have any you know so you're walking through these areas obviously, and I I assume the company you were carrying sea rations which I you know I've, I've done a little bit of research about I haven't eaten any myself. <laughs> part of part of the military's fine dining course. At, I, at I did point. actually attempt to see if I could uh, get my hands on a modern MRE to discuss today, but I wasn't able to. Well, this, uh, yeah, this was kind of before MREs, so these were uh, wonderful little cans, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, you were generally expected to, if you went in the field, uh, to have three days worth of rations. Uh, so that's three days. So nine. On. So nine meals worth. Yeah, resupply, and uh, the army actually, uh, in, in, at least in our area, tried very hard to serve one hot meal a day, which tended to be the the noon meal. If we were in a position where we could logger uh, fairly secure, and they could bring something in on helicopters. Uh, oh, so they would fly the fly the fly lunch in fly essentially lunch in on, as it were. on the helicopter. Yeah. 
uh, I think the best meal issue to uh, to to tell you is every so often uh, we'd be out in the field working out of a small base camp or just out for 10, 15, uh, sometimes as much as 20 days. Uh, there was generally a known situation of when you'd be able to get back into the base camp, uh, clean up, uh, have different, not quite as an intense situation. Uh, and the only thing you knew is that when lunch arrived, uh, if they had ice cream for dessert, you were in the field for at least 10 more days. <laughs> That's an interesting indicator. Yes. They, they were sending you a treat. Yes, right? right. Well, you know, I think it was Napoleon that said an army marches on its stomach. So, yeah, and and sea rations were, you know, were, were different. There were certain things that uh, uh, I think uh, most everybody kind of considered fairly unedible or looked and tasted rather strange. Uh, like, uh, but there were others that were sought after. So beans and franks were very big. And was it was it random? I mean, you you would just sort of get a blank box and you would open it up, and somebody would be lucky and have beans. Yeah, and you franks could kind of tell what some of them were, but there was an awful lot of trading of uh, of cans of uh, cans of things, uh, and then there were things like tropical chocolate that you'd get. That stuff was so bad that if you gave it to the <laughs> Vietnamese kids, they'd throw it back at you. Uh, but uh, you know, the uh, there was uh, people lusted after uh, uh, canned peaches and pound cake. That made a very good uh, good breakfast. Uh, a lot of times if we were out and going to be in a village uh, and the folks appeared to be friendly, uh, we would uh, eat with the, the families in the village. Uh, we'd bring the sea rations. Uh, they would provide the rice and some of the uh, uh, accoutrements. And, oh, what, an, uh, what an interesting potluck. was kind of created a, a really neat potluck dinner. Huh. What... Uh do you have a, do you have a dish that you ate in any of those villages or any of those homes that you remember? Well, I just remember uh, uh, the ham and egg uh, sea ration, which tended to be rather inedible, um, was very nicely disguised with uh, some some ketchup over uh, a very glutinous rice uh, with soy sauce, and it was actually pretty good. That's great. I really, I really like that. Uh, there's a photograph here of uh, of some of the soldiers eating apples, right? Which I assume had come from the United States all the way to Vietnam. Yes, and, the, and you know the army really tried to get, uh, uh, I want to say, foods that people were tended to be familiar familiar with. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, you have to assume a lot of eighteen and nineteen year old troops were not particularly culinary adventurers uh and the culinary landscape of this country in the in the mid 60s was very different than well it yeah now. it was a little a little different but uh actually there were you know local options uh and if you had a little sense of adventure uh you could be very pleasantly surprised I think that's uh, that's great. Uh, we're we're going to take a, a short break to hear from our sponsors, but when we come back, uh, I have some more questions about the about the photographs, and then also about your return trip to Vietnam in 2012. Perfect. And this one's called "Meeting at the Docks" by Rectech. We will be right back.
you still paying attention? Are you there? Hello, 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 hello. I'm talking to you. Hi. Hey, this is Jack Inslee. I'm the executive producer here at Heritage Radio Network. I've been here at the station since 2009, and I cannot believe just how much this network has grown over that time. We've been able to grow because of donations from people like you. So if you're enjoying this, if you laughed, if you learned something, contribute anything. A dollar, two dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, anything counts. And trust me, we'll appreciate seeing your name come through on the donations. So consider visiting heritageradionetwork.org, click on that little beating heart, the donate button, and show us you care. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. This is Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, and I'm here today. Uh, my guest is Hank Bergson, who served in Vietnam in 1969-1970, and we're talking about what that was like and his experiences, and uh, we were talking about the food. Um, a couple of the photographs that you sent to me uh, include a cookout uh, at, one of the, at one of the bases, I assume, um, a f- you know, relatively familiar cut-in-half oil drum, something that you, know, you can make a grill out of just about anywhere. Um, in that case, was the, was the meat being flown in, do you know, from yes. the U.S.? Yes, it was. So that came in, actually not flown in, it came in by ship. Oh, okay. Got it. But, the, you know, there was an attempt on the part of the Army, uh, and, and actually we saw the same thing in Germany, uh, you could uh, you could live within your own insular little circle and have American food, American preparation, etc., with never venturing out onto the uh, onto the local economy. My understanding today is that that's even 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 more true. I mean that, that in the in the way the military bases exist, and you know they have you hear about Taco Bell and KFC and things just being right there on the base, in, absolutely in, in foreign lands. Yeah, and uh, but even that's true in foreign lands. I once uh, chaperoned a group to China. Uh, and uh, young, young kids, uh, high schoolers, uh, and uh, after three days of really great Chinese food, they couldn't wait to go to the McDonald's in Beijing. So that right. still happens. Um, so the 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 grilling obviously was more like at a base and and sea rations. I, I've you know I, I did I've seen some pictures of people you know of of men opening up the cans and p- building a little fire to sort of heat them up. Was there, was there anything, you know, that more really approximated more actual cooking in the field, or really was it just a Not really. Can? I mean, what else came out was, uh, was in the a large mermite cans was pre-cooked, pre-cooked food and insulated, uh, insulated containers. Yeah, you have a nice series of photographs about Thanksgiving, where yeah. they helicoptered out Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner, dinner for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and and usually the heating up of a can or uh, making coffee or something, uh, uh, you could have a little fire. Or generally, if you took a a stick of C four explosive and cut a little bit off, you could uh, light it and it would. Uh, oh, right. it's not explosive. And, it would just, it'd just burn, burn and boil your uh, boil your coffee in your canteen cup. Got it. Um, you do, you know, I know that you did also visit some markets. There's some pictures here of some really good-looking French bread and, and, and things like that. So was that, um, 
you know, was that something that you were able to do while you were on patrol? Did you visit markets? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we actually went shopping, but uh, if you'd be coming through a town, uh, there would be two general type of, of, of street vendors. I mean, one is going to be the uh, soft drinks, Coke, and, and that type of thing. Uh, the other is uh, uh, they had wonderful French bread uh, that they would make into a uh, what I want to call a submarine sandwich, lettuce, tomato. Sure. I mean, the, uh, the banh mi sandwich has become very the, popular. <laughs> et cetera. Uh, and a, uh, uh, which was, you know, an interesting diversion from, from sea rations. Uh, and the other thing was soup. Uh, there were little vendor carts that you run into in the villages where there'd be boiling water that have chicken stock and some uh, ingredients like chicken and flavors. You could kind of flavor your soup. Make it as uh, spicy as you might want it. Uh, boil it in the water so all of the things that could harm the American intestine were gone. Right. Uh, and morning soup was a, a very enjoyable. Uh, uh, Sound, sounds uh, a lot better. Sounds you know? a lot better than sea rations for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, in 2012, you went back to. Yes. Vietnam. Um, your your daughter Susan, who I've known since I was a little kid, uh, was living in Thailand at the time, right? And, right. And you went back and visited uh, a number of the places that you went uh, when you were there. Exactly, and an extremely interesting trip. I, I want to step back just for a minute. Uh, one time when I was in uh, Vietnam in the army, uh, a sergeant who was had been stationed in Saigon during the uh, the 60s, and I had to go to Saigon on business. Uh, we were going to be overnight. Uh, he took me to a little South Vietnamese, very, very nice restaurant uh, with fine French wines. And that's where I kind of suddenly discovered that, uh, uh, as I kind of termed it, Vietnamese cooking was Chinese food with a, a very French twist, very delicate, uh, uh, subtle flavors, and, and really developed uh, a taste for that. So I, I've eaten, obviously, in uh, Vietnamese restaurants since being back, but I was very anxious going back to Vietnam to uh, see if we could recapture that uh, same culinary experience. Were you able at, to find anywhere? At, that was... abso- absolutely. Uh, and so that, it, it sounds to me like what you're describing is a, a sort of perhaps a higher higher level or more polished uh, version of what a lot of Americans think of as Vietnamese food. I think our experience is certainly of a more street food, I guess. Yes. Sort of sort of uh, type of restaurant. And it sounds like what you're describing with, with good wine and things is more that, what we would call like, you know, what I'd think of as like a white tablecloth. Yeah, I think a white tablecloth or fine dining is probably yeah. the best way to uh, to describe it. But I we did find that that was uh, uh, very much the case in uh, – What's now is Ho Chi Minh City. I'm still want to call Saigon. Uh, and we had an opportunity to visit some lovely restaurants uh, uh, when we were in Saigon. And at the same time, uh, also get a, uh, a taste of what you would call uh, the street food. So uh, Vietnamese soup, pho, yep. uh, with various types of ingredients, chicken or shrimp or whatever you like, was a very predominant uh, uh, meal uh, as we traveled uh, traveled through the country for for lunch and things like that, so uh, it was uh, it was extremely interesting. Fish is a major dietary staple. Uh, 
we were certainly I, I loaned you some unique pictures of uh, elephant fish that's yep. kind of fried, dipped in coconut, and served whole. And you, uh, it's for a group of people, and you kind of reach out with your hand and take the, the fish off the bones, which is a kind of a unique dining experience. Uh, but uh, fresh vegetables, uh, things of that nature, were were very prevalent yep. and, and very good. The uh, the in going back in 2012, did you feel like there was a, a change economically um, in the b- between the the times? Oh, significantly. Uh, it was it uh, to me. Uh, I think I I mentioned earlier that I did have a a sense while I was there in the 60s that Vietnam was a hauntingly beautiful country, and I wanted to visit a couple of the beautiful parts that I'd only uh, just seen very briefly. Uh, And I wanted my family, my wife and my granddaughter, along with my daughter, came with us. Uh, So we were able to visit things that had military significance, like the tunnels of Coochie and... uh, you know, have some experience there, but also to visit uh, Saigon, uh, the Dalat area, which is just blooming with flowers. It's a a beautiful area. And Canto, which is down in the Delta, uh, holds the floating markets and and things of that nature, and really experience uh, a lot more of Vietnam and the culture of Vietnam. Change, change, kind of reminds me of what's going on in Brooklyn. <laughs> it, uh, it's drastic change. Uh, where there used to be rickshaws and cyclos, there are now hundreds of motorcycles, uh, a booming economy, uh, certainly uh, Western uh, stores and uh, Sure, you, and you, shops. Gave, you gave me a photograph you took in 1969 and then the same corner in 2012, which now has a brand new Kentucky Fried has Chicken. A Kentucky Fried Chicken on it. I'm not sure we've exported the very best of our culture, but <laughs> uh, it certainly is, uh, certainly is there. And yet uh, the country is still really very uniquely uh, uniquely Vietnam. Yeah, in our in our conversations before the show, I think you brought up an interesting point about um, what happens in a country that loses a war to the United States, and talking about how the point, you know, what the economy has become there in a place like Japan, um, Korea, uh, e- even Germany, um, which you know after World War II, uh, while it took a while, now you know has a, an incredible economy. Yeah, and we've kind of kind of got to kind of walk back the uh, a lot of the political issues and the communist issues uh but uh the american experience in vietnam relative to being the vietnamese uh affected some very drastic change some of it not particularly pretty in that country but the normalization of trade relations the fact that uh, uh labor has been relatively ex- inexpensive uh there's a lot of trade there's a lot of business there's a lot of manufacturing there are a lot of jobs. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of agriculture. Uh, and there's a very heavy immigration into the south from the north because the south is where the jobs are. Makes sense. I mean, that's that's the flow of, of most economies, yes. right? It's the, the people go where the go where the jobs are. Um, was there anything in your time there in the in the military and then going back in 2012 that you uh, that you ate that, that made such an impression on you that you wish you could get the ingredients here but but are unavailable? 
I have I have yet to find um, the perfect spring roll. Uh, they are uh, uh, served at every Vietnamese restaurant uh, in the states that I've eaten at. Some are better than others, but I've never really felt that I was able to duplicate uh, what I had in 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 Vietnam, and I was able to duplicate the 1969 experience in 2012. Now, maybe some of it is the dipping sauce. I think most people have heard the horrible stories of nuke mom, which in fact is uh, fermented fish buried in a jar, picked up after three years, put through a strainer, and you get this this clear... Sure, I mean, yeah, all over that area. Clear liquid, and and it's spiced accordingly, but it, it does add a great deal of flavor. Uh, if you forget about how it was created. Uh, and I just really haven't run into the perfect spring roll yet uh, as I wandered through uh, uh, Vietnamese restaurants in my travels. I would imagine that the, that the fish sauce here, while, while my knowledge of it from being a retailer, is that there are some better ones available. By and large, the ones that are mostly available, I think, are really the commodity yeah. ones. And so and you're not getting the same complexity of flavor from you know, what, what you can have in the, in the country. Correct. And the fine restaurants, it's very finely refined, I guess, is the best way the the fish sauce. It's certainly like everything else is is grated. Well, um, thank you so much for, for being my guest today. If there, do you have any uh, sort of final final thoughts you'd be interested? You know, you'd like to share with listeners as someone who spent time there. Um, you know, in in the military during a war and then has gone back. I just I think the main thing is uh, it is a hauntingly beautiful country. Uh, it is uh, peopled with. Uh, I, I like to say friendly people. The experience in 2012 was very accommodating, very welcoming, uh, and and not because you were a tourist and they wanted your money. It was because they were generally uh, generally nice people. Uh, we found that in the military when we were able to eat with families uh, where we were doing things that helped them recover their farmlands. They were very appreciative uh, when we were blowing up uh, an area where they lived, they weren't so happy. But uh, I think we did more good than, at least from my perspective, more good than harm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for joining me today. Uh, this has been Harry Rosenblum with Feast Your Ears from HeritageRadioNetwork.org. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 nonprofit. to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening 